As we start today, we're starting a new series. And uh, this series is called I Believe, and it's based on what's called the Apostles' Creed. Now, we are not a creedal church. We don't sit in every day, every week, not saying that's a bad thing, but we don't every week recite the Apostles' Creed and those kind of things. But, but we're going to be looking at what does this mean? What is the whole purpose behind this document that was written so many years ago, and how does it pull us together as believers to understand what, what God is trying to tell us and what the purpose of the Apostles' Creed, what the purpose of theology is. Um, because I know in today's society, it's kind of become passe to talk about theology. You know, if we're going to talk about theology, we'll get... All everybody gets glassy-eyed, and I don't want to talk about those kind of things because it's too deep, and, and I just want people to love each other, and don't give me theology, just give me Jesus. And, and so, you know, we begin to, to realize and understand that we gotta, we've got to know what the Bible teaches. And the purpose of the Apostles' Creed was to corroborate Scripture. Now, the Apostles' Creed, there's, there's a couple of different versions of it which is obvious. I mean, as people write things down and they change and somebody adds to and all this kind of stuff. But the, the one that we look at today, most churches use today, was written down around the, the mid-300s. So it's been around a long time. But there are traces of it that date all the way back to 140 A.D. Now you say, that doesn't seem that significant. Well, if you read through your Bible, you get to the last book of the Bible. It's the book of the Revelation. It's written by the Apostle John around the 90s. So you're looking at about 40 to 50 years after the last apostle died that there are traces of this document in place. So in other words, this was around, even though it wasn't written down to where we have a copy of it till maybe the the mid-300s, we know of copies of it that existed prior to that, at least about 140 AD. So that's been a long time. Now, what would be the purpose of a document like this? Because we say, well, you know, we've got, we've got so many books. We've got the Bible. We've got all this stuff. Why would you need a document like this? They didn't have that then. So I think sometimes we forget about the newness of all this to these guys that were writing this stuff down. Yeah, they had the Old Testament, and they had, a lot of them had been taught it in, in synagogue school and all those things, But still, this is all new. There's this guy who's come along who everybody believed was the Messiah. He was killed. He he rose again. We've witnessed this. We've got to somehow put something down in writing that says this is what we believe. This is what we know to be true from what we know from Christ. Because they knew eventually they were all going to die. As a matter of fact, they all died within except for the Apostle John, they all died within 15 to 20 years after Christ was resurrected. Most of them were martyred. They'd gone out to to share the gospel and were killed in India and Iraq and North Africa and different places. John, they tried to kill him. They boiled him in oil and he survived it. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos and he lived till his 90s. Now, you know, I don't know whether that was better that he survived or didn't survive, but God had him, he had to write down 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the gospel and the revelation, so he had to live a, live a little bit longer. But we have all these documents that we are there to learn and understand what is the scripture saying. You know, because I think today, what we see today is 
too much. And, and this has been true for years. I say today, this has been true since I was in high school, which uh, I think it was back before they had written word. But you know, we, people have always had this, today I'm going to call it Facebook theology. Now that wasn't around when I was in high school because it wasn't such a thing. But the idea is everybody has an opinion. Everybody's opinion is valid. Everybody, if all they do is just post it and tweet it, then that makes it right. And so we, we see all this theology floating around where whatever you believe is good. You know, if as long as it's good for you and you're sincere, then everything is good. Now, I saw an illustration when I was in high school where a guy had taken a Clorox bottle and he washed it out real good, but he filled it with water. And he stood at the front and he said, man, I sincerely believe this is water and guzzled it. And everybody, ah, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because if it had been Clorox, no matter how sincere he thought it was water, it was not going to be a good thing to drink. And so we need to understand that sincerity, and this is what I feel, and, and, and it just makes me feel good, that's not necessarily always true. And so we need to understand. And so as we think through the Apostles' Creed, as we begin to look at theology from the perspective of the guys who were with Jesus and wrote down what they believed to be the essentials of the faith, then we're going to begin to look at that. And so the, the, the today is the first statement from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now remember, the Apostles' Creed, as I said, was there to corroborate Scripture. It was there to help fight against heresy. Because at that time, there were all kinds of people teaching all kinds of things. Jesus warned that it would happen. And there, so there were all these different people saying all these different ideas. And we're going to see a couple of them today in the passage that had all these different ideas as to what God was like and what theology was. And so what we're going to see is the apostles write this down, but this is here to corroborate Scripture, so let's look at Scripture. Let's just don't look at the Apostles' Creed. Does it do much good to build our theology off of what men wrote down? We'll sort of look at what the Scripture says. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at this passage today. This is a unique passage. Um, it has been preached on under all kinds of different uh, venues. And, and it, actually, there was a church in uh, Seattle that had the name of this little place, Mars Hill. It was their church. And, and so the idea being we're going to be philosophers and we're going to be able to work through these theologies together. And so we're going to be looking at Acts 17 and just kind of getting an idea of what's going on. Um, even though our passage is a little bit later, let's look at verse 16 real quick. And you, if you don't have your Bible, it's not even going to be up on the screen. Just listen. I want you to hear what he says here. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, this is what's happening on what's called Paul's second missionary journey. Paul would go and he would take several people with him. He would plant churches all around uh, the Middle East there, and then he'd go back and he'd kind of regroup and he'd go back and visit those people and encourage them and plant other churches. And this is his second round of going with people. Now, just prior to this, he had been in Thessalonica and stirred up some trouble. In, in 17.6, it says that they stirred up so much trouble, the people said, these people are turning the world upside down. And so he, they, they've really kind of ticked a bunch of people off, and they're kicked out of Thessalonica, and the guy who's the government official there in Thessalonica named Jason, they drag him out of his house because he's welcomed them in, 
and stone him in the streets. But Paul and them have escaped. They've gone to Berea, where in Berea, things were a little bit better. People were studying the scriptures. Paul had a good chance. But some people from Thessalonica, who didn't like Paul, followed him to Berea and began to persecute him there. So Paul had to escape. But Paul's companions who were traveling with him stayed in Berea. They just shipped Paul out, and he goes to Athens. That's where we find him today. He's there by himself waiting for his companions to catch up with him, and he's just walking around the streets of Athens. But it says he sees all these idols, and it provokes him. I think one passage said this one says it deeply troubles him. The idea is here it makes him sick to his stomach. It ticks him off. Now, he's not ticked off because these people have developed idols. And he's not mad at the people for having idols. He's mad at the fact that idols exist at all. Back a few weeks, a few months ago, I was in Turkey. And in Adana, Turkey, there's one of the largest mosques in Turkey there. And so we went to visit this mosque just in the middle of the day. There wasn't a prayer time. There wasn't anything going on. There were a couple of people in there praying, but it's open to the public to come in, take pictures, wander around. On the floor in the carpet, it has arrows that point to Mecca, so you know which direction you're supposed to pray when you're in the building, because you get in the building, you know, I mean, it's like getting directions from Siri, you know, go east on, on sunset, I don't know which way is east, just tell me right or left, you know, so they got the arrows that point to Mecca, so you know which direction is east, you know, which way to pray, but as I'm walking around in there, and I'm seeing one or two people praying, and, and I have to take off my shoes to go in, just something in me is just not settled. Something about it just doesn't feel right. It's kind of frustrating to think that, that every day, and especially on Fridays, thousands of people come and kneel on this carpet and pray to Mecca and are totally lost and have no idea what they're doing. And then the next month, Judy and I went to Savannah for our anniversary trip, and we went in the church of St. John the Baptist. Anybody ever been in the church of St. John the Baptist in Savannah? I felt just as much frustration and irritation in that church building as I did in the mosque in Turkey. Because John the Baptist, who in John chapter 1 says, he must increase and I must decrease, now has a building that costs billions of dollars with all this ornate stuff in honor of his name. I'm just thinking, you know, I don't know that people actually roll over in their grave. That's a phrase that people used when I was growing up. But I think he's rolling over in his grave. Without his head, but his body's rolling over in the grave. <laughs> Sorry, that, that's, that popped in my head. I shouldn't have said it, but anyway. But, you know, and so I'm thinking, I'm feeling that same gut feeling of just something is not right in this building. And that's what Paul's feeling. As a matter of fact, there was a poet, a Roman poet, who said it was easier to find idols in Athens than it was men. There were over 3,000 statues in the city. Every home had idols. Every entryway into the city had protecting gods. And so there were all these idols, and Paul's walking around, and just something in his spirit says, this is not right. This shouldn't be. So he goes on from there and he goes into the synagogue and he talks with the Jews and then he goes to the, to the public to debate. It says in verse 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, 
What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. See, here he goes now, he's, he's gone to the Jews for a while, and he goes out and he talks to these philosophers. And these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, these were two guys who had two opposite ends of the spectrum on what they believed. The Epicureans were hedonist, basically. The idea was God doesn't care. We do believe in God, but he's kind of up there. He doesn't have anything to do with anything. Just live and let live. You know, let's just, pleasure is, is important. Just live your life that way. The Stoics were on the other end. The Stoics believed that if there was a God, he didn't really care about anything, didn't have anything. And, but you need to discipline yourself. You know, if you even enjoyed that donut this morning, you need to repent. How many of you had a donut? Okay, you need to repent because you had a donut and you enjoyed it. Can't have any fun in life. No fun for you. You know, and I said no soup for you, no fun for you. Uh, you know, and so the idea here is these guys, they go back and forth. And so Paul kind of stirs the pot. He talks about the resurrection. And, and they're going, uh, wait a minute. He's introducing weird gods. What's going on? And they call him a babbler. Now the word there is, a word, it's called a seed picker. Now I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've been around chickens some, even the ones that I don't eat. And, and you think, about, you know, you go and you, you throw the seed down on the ground and what are they doing? They're just grabbing, 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 grabbing. They'll grab trash, they'll grab whatever's on the ground. And he said, that's what Paul is, this babbler, this seed picker. He's just kind of coming up with all kinds of weird ideas. So what are we going to do? We want to know a little bit more about these weird ideas because we all like to stand around and talk about weird ideas. So we'll take him to what's called Mars Hill or the Areopagus and we'll, we'll let him share a little bit more. So that's when we come to verses 22 and 23, which will be on the screen up here. It says, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Now, Paul starts off maybe in what some of us might consider a flattery, you know. Maybe he's just trying to, to butter the people up. But I don't think that's really what's going on. Because Paul doesn't, he, he, never doesn't, he never seems to butter people up. He pretty much comes out and says it. But the idea is he knows that if he just land blasts them first thing, they're not, he's not going to have a hearing. So he says, you know, I was walking around, I seen all these idols I can see you're religious people. Not saying that's a good thing, but I see you're religious. But I, in the midst of all that, I noticed one, I had, um, one altar that said to an unknown God. Now, why would they have an altar to an unknown God? Anybody think about that? They're covering their bases. You know? I mean, Paul kind of does the same thing in the end of Romans. He says, all these things can't separate you from the love of Christ. And even if you think of anything... It can't separate, you know, it's just kind of, just in case you come up with something that you think Mike could do it, it can't. And he's saying, you know, you've got all these idols and just in case you've missed something, you've got this idol to an unknown God. Now the word there unknown is where we get the word agnostic. So he's saying, you're saying, I'm just not sure. 
just in case there's a God out there. I want to have an altar to, to honor him. You know, who knows? So he says, that God, that one that you don't know about, the one that you're not sure whether he's there or not, he's the one I'm here to tell you about. Now, you don't think that perked their attention? Wow. Let's see what he's going to have to say. Now, they may think he's an idiot when he's done, but at least he's gotten their attention now. He's shown that he cares enough that he wants to share with them about this God that they don't know about. And so he says this, this unknown God. And then he comes to verse 24, which is really kind of where we get this first point of the Apostles' Creed. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, when he says this, he has now gotten the approval of both the Epicureans and the Stoics. He has said something that brings them both together. They can both agree on there's a God out there that created everything. Now, they don't agree with where it goes from there, but that's, he's, he's starting with common ground. This is where we can agree together that this is the God who created everything. A gentleman named Dan DeHaan said this, personal Christianity begins with the existence of an objective and infinite God. See, Christianity would mean nothing if there were no such person as God. Jesus would have just been a man who died and some of his followers said he rose again, but he's buried somewhere and it's all said and done. But it's the existence of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this in his, in his prayer, that this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christianity begins with knowing God. Understanding and knowing who he is. Paul's saying this God that you're saying, we don't even know if he exists. We're not sure. I'm telling you now, you can know him. He's the God who created everything and you can know him. So then he goes on to say, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Okay, right here. Man, the Epicureans are going, hey, all right. Finally, we got somebody who agrees with us. He satisfies every need. See, we told you. God's all about satisfying your needs and you being pleased and everything being great. Let's go, Paul. Keep telling him, keep telling him. Then Paul says this. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth, he decided beforehand that they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Now, the Epicureans believed that God created everything for pleasure and then just kind of backed out. No longer involved. You know, the God, God doesn't have anything to do with anything. Now Paul has gone, yeah, he created everything to satisfy your needs, but he has been involved from the start. He has put boundaries on nations, on how far they could go, what they could do, where they were going to be located. You say, well, when did that happen? You ever gone back to Genesis chapter 11? Genesis chapter 11 is all one big people who all spoke the same language, and they decided they were going to make a name for themselves, and God said, oh, sorry, not going to make a name for yourself. And he confused their languages, and he sent them out. And he, he scattered people throughout the world. And he determined where they live, 
how long they live, how long their uh, society exists. So now the Epicureans are going, wait a minute. We agreed with you on the first part, ah, but this part we're not real sure about. What do you mean that he, he's the one in charge? You mean he's not just the man upstairs that we pray to from time to time and we hope, you know, likes us when it's all said and done? No. He's involved in the affairs of man. And then he goes on to say, in verse, again, verse 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now here, the Stoics are going, all right, Paul, you shut them down. Boy, you showed them. Now you're agreeing with us. You know, he's close to all of us. They're pantheists, remember? God's in everything. And so he says, he's close to us. In him, we live and move and exist. And they're going, all right, Paul. Thank you, you finally showed these stupid Epicureans that they, we don't, they don't know what they're talking about. But what else does Paul say? He created them so that they would seek after him. So that they might possibly find him. The issue is not that you just kind of discipline yourself and be tough and maybe God will accept you in the end. He's saying he's created them so that they'll seek after him and grope after him, that was what the New American Standard says. But that word grope is a, is a different word. Back when, when Judy and I were dating, um, her home church, for some reason, all of us college students, I don't know how we had a key to get into the church, but somehow we did. But we played hide and seek. That's something good for college students to do, right? Hide and seek in this church. Well, the church had a basement. And when you turn off the lights in the basement of the church, it's dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And if you go in any of the little Sunday school classrooms, it gets even darker. And so you'd go down there and you're searching, you're, you're it, and you're trying to find people. And so you're walking down and you, you're, you're feeling along the wall. You know, you're wanting to find somebody, but what happens when you actually do? Oh, my goodness. You touch, you know, because all of a sudden you've touched something that moves in the dark. And, and you didn't see them coming, it's scary. That's what he's saying. They're groping around. They're, they're feeling their way along the wall, trying to find God. That's why he created man, so that man would seek after him. He, he, it's not that God is distant from us. It's that we're distant from him. He wants us to seek after him. He created mankind to, to know him, to, to follow after him, to, to grope for him and to seek him. Not just to say, I'm gonna be tough and disciplined and hope, I work, hope it all works out in the end. So Paul now has said, this God that you don't know about, I'm telling you about. This is who he is. He created everything. He set boundaries for the nations and he wants those nations to seek after him and to grope after him. Remember, personal Christianity begins with the existence of an objective and infinite God. Now, a couple of things I want us to understand about this. First off, it's not a cultural thing. It's not an American thing. It's not just those who can, can figure it all out thing. God created, as a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes it says, God put eternity in humankind's hearts. 
There's a story called Peace Child. Anybody ever read the book called Peace Child? That shows my age. Okay, all the CIU people um, who are made to read it. But Peace Child, Peace Child's the story of some missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea back in the 60s. Matter of fact, their son is now the president of Pioneers Mission Agency. But they went, Don Richardson was a professional baseball player. God called him to missions. He went to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And they were in this tribe that was a warring tribe with another tribe. So every day there was fighting going on between these two tribes. And, and, and Don Richardson's trying to figure out how do I share the gospel with these people who consider it a good thing that you lie to each other. So when he's telling the story initially, Judas is the hero because Judas deceived. So he's going, okay, now I'm stuck. How do, I, how do I share the gospel where Judas is the hero in this culture? And so finally one day they decided that there was going to be peace between these two warring tribes. And he watched as the, the king of the predominant tribe brings his newborn son out and hands his newborn son to the king of the other tribe. And as long as that child lives, there's peace between these two tribes. This is the peace child. There it was. God had put in that culture a system, a story, a way of dealing with peace that opened the door for the gospel. And God has done that around the world. A friend of mine will be here next week who's from Iran. And uh, Brandon met him a few months back. And Safi will tell you, he came to know Christ from reading the Koran. And he realized, if this is true, Christ must be true. And then in a dream, Christ said, yeah, this is right. Two friends of ours from Azerbaijan were here a few weeks ago. Both of them came to know Christ through dreams. And you say, well, that seems weird to me. Well, because it's not a cultural thing. God moves and touches people's hearts the way that they hear him. And Paul is coming here and saying to the Epicureans and the Stoics, this is who this God is. He's, he's not changing the gospel, but he's making it culturally relevant for them. So it's not a cultural thing. It's not just what I can believe and that I'll, and coming. You know, we're, right now we're in a church where we're sitting in nice chairs and we've got set up, which by the way, I'll announce at the end. If anybody wants to come help us set up, we'd be glad to let you. Um, but, you know, we've got air condition. But I've, I've been in church services where we sat on a broken down bed under a tree with six people and, and we had church. I've been in a church service on the side of the road where our van stopped and we blew the horn and blew the horn, blew the horn until everybody came from the fields and we stood on the side of the road and had church. And then they went back to work in the fields. It's not a matter of what it looks like. It's not a matter of what we think's best. It's, it's not a cultural thing. God's message supersedes and crosses all cultures. We also need to understand that it's not an opinion thing. Again, again back to Facebook. I don't care what your opinion is about God. It really doesn't matter. It's not an opinion. It's not this, well, this is what I think, so it makes it right. You know, because if you think about it, if what everybody thinks is right, who's right? Either we're all wrong or we can't all be right if we're saying the opposite things, right? And so, so there's this idea, it's not an opinion. It's not a, 
having this unknown God just in case. You know, I'll go to church and, and I'll, I'll get involved some, you know, but I, I want to kind of hold out on some of this other stuff just in case uh, that city church is crazy and wrong. I, I want to hold on to this. And, and just in case those Christians aren't sure what they're talking about, you know, let me, let me keep this over here too, just in case. That's what they were doing in Athens. And Paul's saying, no, this, this unknown God, this God you're trying to keep over there just in case, let me tell you about him. Again, he created the world. He, he put boundaries on the nations. He wants mankind to seek after him and to grope after him. So it's not just an opinion thing. And also, it's not an optional thing. R.C. Sproul said this. This is where I'm going to get in trouble today. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. R.C. Sproul said this, God does not give us the right to choose what religion we want to follow. The U.S. government may give you that right, but God does not. He commands all men everywhere to repent. It's not a matter of what do you think. It's not a matter of what is the new fad that's coming around. It's not optional. It's not, well, you know, every, I, I had a little thing stuck in my door yesterday from somebody who was wandering around the neighborhood handing out little things to stick in doors if people aren't home. It's not an option. Christ has said this is the God who created everything that we're talking about today. The God who made it all, made it so that man would seek after and grope after him. That we would know God, the only true God whom Je- and Jesus Christ who he has sent. So how do we do that? If you're here today, and if you are here today, that's a dumb statement. If you're here today. <laughs> Preachers say that all the time. I quite, and I say, it. if you're here today, well, yeah, you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't hear me. Um, since you're here today, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you've come today and you thought, well, let me check this out. Maybe you're, you're out there going, well, I just, I just don't know. I want to keep all my options open just in case. I, you know, there is this unknown God, and, and I, if, if that's the case, if you're saying, I came today, and, and what this guy's saying makes sense, and God created me so that I will seek after him, what do I need to do? You need to seek after him. Grope for him. Jeremiah says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. He's opening up the door. If you're sitting there today and you're saying, this makes sense. And, and I want to seek after God. I want to know God. I want to have this relationship that this guy's talking about. Let's talk. Let's sit down after the service. Don't, don't get up and go, well, that, that was nice and I enjoyed it, so let me get out of here so before somebody talks to me. Pull me aside. Pull anybody aside and say, I want to know who this God is. I, I want to seek after him and get to know who he is so that I can have that relationship that Wade was talking about. But also I want us to know that maybe... You're sitting today thinking, you know, 
I have a relationship with Christ. I've given my life to Christ. But this whole idea of knowing God, that just seems kind of foreign to me. Not real sure what I need to do. Well, you need to strive to know who God is. You need to strive to know God, not know who God is. Because there's three things I want us to understand, three cautions. First off, you can know about God without knowing God. There's a lot of people who know about God. You know, some of you may or may not have had the privilege of meeting Nikki Haley when she was governor here. I never met her. I know who about her. I could recognize her on TV. I might even recognize her on the street if I ran into her. But if I went up to talk to her, she'd be gracious and talk to me. But she'd walk away going, who on earth is that guy? Because I don't know her. I know about her. Heard a lot of things about her, seen her on TV. But I don't know her. I don't have a relationship with her. And too often we sit around going, I really want to know God, so let me watch uh, Chicago Med and see if I can find him in that. Let me, let me do some other things and, and, and maybe he'll speak to me somewhere down the line and, and I'll just kind of wait him out. No. You can know about God without knowing God. Secondly, you can live morally without knowing God. The Stoics did it. They lived good moral lives. They kept themselves from evil. There's a lot of religions and cults out there that live morally. Muslims live morally. And you say, well, that, you know, we watched a thing on the, in London yesterday. That's not moral. That's, that's a minority. For the most part, you meet Muslims, they live moral lives. But you can live morally without knowing God without having that relationship with him. Then also knowledge alone without a change of lifestyle is worthless. Again, we sit and wait for God to bring this big revelation to us. You say, well, it happened for Idris and Murad and and Safi. They had dreams. They were also not living in a way that they were seeking after God. God sought them out. And God in his grace and mercy moved that way. But that's the rare case that God moves that way. But the issue is, I'm not talking to people who don't know God or not, don't have a relationship with Christ. I'm talking about people who have a relationship with Christ and all they can do is post on social media how miserable their life is and how nothing ever happens right for them. And you know what ends up being the, the situation Is it not that bad things happen? We all have bad things happen to us. But whose fault is it when you say that in your mind? It's God's fault. Why isn't God doing something better for me? Why isn't my life better? God's done, been so mean to me. And the issue is you don't know God because all you're looking at is I want him to do something better for me while I live my life the way I want to live it. 
and knowing about God and even knowing, having knowledge of God. When I was 17, I had a friend of mine ask me a question. Are you programmed or are you converted? Because I'd grown up in church. I could answer every question. Man, I've been in Sunday school since my mom, nine months before I was born. I don't know if you could hear anything in the womb, but I'd been hearing stuff at least. And so I, I could answer. Man, I knew the scriptures. I knew at least all the Sunday school answers. And he said, you know a lot of answers. Are you just programmed or are you converted? Do we have a lot of answers but no relationship? See, that's where we are in the world today. Because we can find answers like that. You get on the internet and type in whatever you want to type in, it's going to give you the answers you're looking for. And you call or look at any TV program or anything, any, talk to just about any preacher out there, and you're going to find an answer for just about anything you can find, whether they are right or not, they're going to give you an answer. But the issue is we've got to know God, and we get to know God by doing what he's called us to do. Philip Yancey said this, I do not get to know God and then do his will. I get to know God by doing his will. As you begin to to do what God's called you to do, as you begin to listen to what the scripture says, what are some things he tells us to do? He tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. He tells us to, to abide in the word. As we begin to do these things that he's called us to do, then we begin to know him and know more about him. See, when I met Judy, I didn't sit around going, boy, I sure hope I get to run into her again someday. I called her, asked her out, sat for till two or three in the morning listening to stories and telling stories and getting to know each other. I was a youth pastor at a church and the pastor made me sit on the stage while he preached which if you ever pastor church, don't do that to anybody. Because here I've been out to two or three in the morning and he's preaching and I'm trying to stay awake on the stage and I find not to fall off the, the seat. You know. But how did I get to know Judy? I sought after her. I asked her questions. When she was sick and she said, I really want a milkshake and it was snowing, I got in the car and I drove down the street to Dairy Queen and got her a milkshake. I did the things that that pleased her because I wanted to know her. And the same thing is true with God. If we want to know God, we got to do the things that please him and build that relationship and talk to him and listen to him and, and keep, we get to know God by doing his will. So as we think about this series, if you have a chance this week, look up the Apostles' Creed. Just read through it. It'd take you about 30 seconds to read through it. If you're a slow reader, a minute. Okay, it's not long. Just read through and hear what the Apostle said. This is essential for people to know to be what God's called them to be. But the first thing is that he's God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who created everything 
set boundaries for the nations and made it so that the people could search after and seek after and grope after him. And if we seek after and grope after him, we will find him. He's promised us that. So let's determine today to seek after God. Whether it's to seek after him to know him because we don't have a relationship at all or whether it's to seek after him to see what do you want me to do and be, God, so that I can know you better as I do what you've called me to do. Let's pray.